Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome everyone to episode 10 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello, good. I'm very good. Good. I'm very excited for our 10th episode today. It's a milestone episode for us and uh, what will be the final episode of season one and our biggest case so far. Yeah, and I mean, it's gone kind of fast, don't you think? Yeah, it has. I, I mean, I say that, but we've also done some pretty dumb stuff <laughs> on and off air, mostly how weird our conversations have been the last couple of weeks off air. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and how funny we think we've been off air. Um, <laughs> but also I did completely forget to say thank you to our new patrons last episode um, and I didn't read out our five-star reviews. <laughs> so I'm very sorry, everyone. We will absolutely be doing that tonight. Um, and I've also made a real effort to make my happy thought at the end, not about food or alcohol this week, which has been a real constant for me the past couple of weeks. So hang around for that. Or, you know, let me know if you do want food review taste testing to be introduced as a regular part of the podcast, because, you know, how good's food? (laughs) (laughs) I think that could be on the horizon season two. We'll have a little, uh, a little food segment at the start or at the end. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Excellent. So before we start the case today, a couple of quick notes about the show. True Blue True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly to fortnightly basis. And don't forget you can support the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is really easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 per month, you'll get exclusive Patreon content, access to Q&As, behind-the-scenes material, blooper reels. We tease the next show in our Patreon episodes and you'll get 10% off in the merch store when that's up and running. We've got some extra special shout-outs for our new supporters today, Chloe. Yes, we do. Uh, Thank you so much to Helen Turner, Edith Osborne and Jodie Bradley. Thank you so much for the support. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. We really appreciate it. We understand that not everyone can get behind us on that front, 
that's fine. Thank you for checking out our regular episodes. There's other ways that you can help spread the love for us and support the show. You can tell your friends and work colleagues. You can join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram and share the podcast on social media as well. Any true crime groups or forums who have members that might be interested. And if you're up for it, please give us a five-star rating and write us a review on iTunes or whatever app you use. We read out the five-star reviews from iTunes at the ep- end of each episode when I remember. Except or for last <laughs> <laughs> With the exception of last week. Yes. Or if we actually don't get any. Yes. <laughs> that any. never happens. <laughs> <laughs> we only got a four-star review. Uh, not a review, but like a four-star rating. Which I like, I can understand a two or like a five, <laughs> but like a four is kind of just not quite there. Yeah. <laughs> Do better, guys. We promise we will. <laughs> Before we get into the case today, just a quick content warning. Uh, we just wanted to advise listeners that this episode contains extremely graphic content, in particular, the descriptions in the latter part of this twisted tale. So we'd encourage everyone to exercise self-care and to look after themselves when listening to this episode. The case we're talking about today really needs no introduction. It's been widely covered in the media and true crime circles, and it's probably the most notorious case that we've covered ourselves. It's a story about a woman who, through nature, nurture or both, ended up committing one of our country's most sinister crimes. And it really was the gory details of this that propelled it into the true crime stratosphere, if you will. Because we'll see as we go along, at its core, it was a situation of escalating domestic violence. And those murders are often underreported, if reported at all. But there was something very different about this case. And that was the person at the centre of it. Catherine Mary Knight was born on the 24th of October, 1955, half an hour after her non-identical twin sister, Joy. She was one of four children to Barbara Rowan and Ken Knight. Barbara already had another four children with a man named Jack Rowan before this, when they married in the 1940s. Barbara had an affair with Ken Knight and left Jack. This caused a stir in the local community where they lived, and Barbara and Ken would be forced to move to the town of Moree due to the community's sensitivity around their affair. And it was here they'd start their own family, having the twins, Catherine and Joy, and two other children. Barbara's previous four children, however, lived elsewhere to begin with. Two lived with an aunt in Sydney, while two stayed living with Jack, their father. But in 1959, Jack would pass away and two of his boys would end up coming back to their mother and living with Barbara and Ken. Over the next decade, the family continued to move around a lot before they felt things had settled enough to return to their hometown of Aberdeen. Aberdeen was a small town with around 1,500 people at the time. It was located in the Upper Hunter Valley region of New South Wales, about three hours north of Sydney. It was probably peaking in terms of its economic viability in the 70s and 80s, with its coal mining and meatwork industries. 
but into the 2000s it was a lower socioeconomic area, which had the associated struggles that come along with changing times, closing businesses, etc. Around this time, one of the town's lifeblood businesses, its abattoir, would close its doors for good. And it was against this backdrop of modern-day Aberdeen that one of Australia's most gruesome and disturbing murders would occur. Barbara and Ken moved around with their family quite a lot in the early days due to Ken's work as a slaughterman at abattoirs. He was described as a hard worker and an alcoholic who openly used to hurt and rape Barbara up to 10 times a day. Astonishing behaviour even for the time. Barbara too had a short temper, regularly employing foul language in front of the kids and divulging pretty intimate details about her and Ken's sex life, attempting to kind of quasi-educate the girls on learning to put up with sex from men. During this time in her childhood, it was alleged by Catherine that she suffered sexual abuse at the hands of family members. Apparently not by her father Ken, he just drank and raped her mother, but this abuse continued on until Catherine was 11. The details of what happened to her are debated, but it's generally accepted she suffered abuse and that much has been confirmed by family. We just don't know by who or how frequently. But from the age of three or four, with the violence she was exposed to, Catherine really had to learn to fight and hide from a very young age. And this kind of thing can cause problems very early on for children in their formative years. Children don't have the capacity to deal with this kind of trauma on an emotional level. So they can sort of short circuit, if you will, and they can sort of disconnect from reality, bottling it up in the back of their mind. So it's very dangerous, potentially. As a young girl, Catherine was described as being pleasant and caring. She wasn't allowed to have pets and she would often bring home injured animals and nurse them back to health. But most of all, she was known for having a violent temper which would boil over at a moment's notice. This would happen with the most minor of incidents. She'd just fly into what was described as an uncontrollable rage. She attacked at least one other kid that we know of, aside from the fistfight she'd have with her sister Joy and other family members, and she also assaulted a teacher at one point. She was around 15 at this time, attending uh, Muzzlebrook High, and she became a bully herself after being bullied in her younger years. She did have a conviction in the children's court also, but due to her age at the time, those records are sealed. Catherine was described as an ordinary-looking woman, auburn red hair, tall, slim, freckled with glasses. She was described as having looked like a librarian or a local RSL bar worker, pulling you beers while chucking you a menu and telling you to order at the counter when you're ready. She was the more girly of the two twins, however. Joy was described as the tomboy, but they could both handle themselves, probably due to growing up with four brothers in the household. There was also a tale of Catherine pulling a knife on some local boys when they approached her and some friends one day. Apparently these lads kind of hollered out to the girls in a semi-aggressive manner, and Catherine shocked her friends by pulling out a knife and encouraging the boys to have a go. The boys took off, obviously, and her friends were stunned. They'd not seen anyone do this before. When she wasn't flying off the handle, Catherine was by all accounts a decent student, but nevertheless, she left school at the age of 15 and is often reported to have landed a job at the Aberdeen Meatworks, an abattoir. 
So this was in 1969 now, by the way. Ken and Barbara had returned to the area of Aberdeen after their mini self-imposed exile. I don't know, I guess the locals just got over it when Jack passed. But Catherine's first job, to my understanding, was actually working as a fabric cutter at a clothing shop, a far cry from the knives of the impending abattoir job, but she probably still had a decent pair of scissors handy at this time. It took a couple of goes to get her application accepted at the Aberdeen Meatworks, but at 15, she'd land what is described as her dream job there, working as a labourer initially, mopping up blood and carcass off the floors. She then became a slicer in the offal room, decapitated pigs specifically, I read, and then she became a boner. Now, that part was begging for a joke, especially when you consider that Catherine would use sex as a control mechanism down the track, but I've exercised restraint in this case. Uh, I can't promise that all the way through the episode, though, Chloe. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know if it's restraint if you mention it, but it may want. At the abattoir, they'd kill and bone 600 animals a day. Catherine got her own set of knives at this time and they became her most prized possession. It was said that she enjoyed watching these animals die and having a hand in their deaths. She'd nick arteries and watch them bleed out. She regularly spoke with a guy who worked on the pig sticking floor, which was a gory visit each time. She took pleasure in their death. Seemingly death in general, which we'll see more as we go along. But this job really just fueled the already existing fantasies Catherine was having. And looking forward here, you have to wonder how much this fed and developed her urges, or if it kept her satiated. We often see this with serial killers, where they have a job that scratches that itch, keeps them contained somewhat, where they can exercise power in their daily role. Uh, BTK is a good example when he worked in local laws and animal control, giving out infringement notices. And Catherine once again gave as good as she got from the blokes at the abattoir. There was a couple of stories about her chasing guys down and threatening them with her knife, scaring the shit out of them. The look in her eyes, I recall one of them said, they never taunted her again after that. In 1973, Catherine met a guy named David Kellett through her brother, and it was said that this was her first sexual partner. Kellett, whose nickname was Shorty for obvious reasons, he was maybe half a head shorter than Catherine, he wore Cuban heels, Kellett, to give himself a lift, but he also worked at the abattoir, which I take it most people in Aberdeen did, either there or the coal mine. So the pair were right into the swing of things. It was the 70s. They were young and wild and ready to party. Callot was a rebel. I think he'd done a short stint in prison. He was a smart-ass punk, really, and he was on the rebound at the time. Catherine was a young, nice-looking, quiet, and fit the bill for Callot as he was looking to settle down somewhat, and it wouldn't take long for them to get married. Catherine was 18 at this point. Basically, they had a wedding party, took Catherine's motorcycle to the registry office and did the official paperwork and then had a big piss up at the pub after. But Kellett would get a taste pretty quickly for the violence that was to follow in his new marriage. On their wedding night, Kellett awoke with Catherine on top of him trying to choke him. And this was because he'd only been able to go two or three times, which wasn't enough for Catherine on their wedding night. She wanted double that or thereabouts, because apparently that's what her parents had done. 
And Callard had been drinking like a fish all day, so really he did well to just show up. Callard would later say that Catherine's mum, Barbara, said to him fairly early on in their relationship, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. She's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. But despite this foreshadowing and the attempted strangling on their wedding night, Catherine and Kellett's relationship went well at first. They were polar opposites, which often works, and they were in love. Catherine got along well with Kellett's family. She was said to be quite charming when she wanted to be. But around the 12-month mark into their marriage, Catherine's mood swings would surface. She would be walking around the house singing at one moment and then the next she'd have pots and pans out swinging them wildly in a fit of rage. And it was said when this happened, she had an uncanny amount of strength and we see this with some people, that adrenaline build up when they become enraged. She could have easily thrown Kellett across the room when she was in this state. An example of her typical behaviour was if Callot hung a shirt on the clothesline the wrong way, Catherine would come up behind him and swing a punch at him for no other reason than being displeased with the hanging method. Callot laughed much of this off at first. So Callot's family saw bits of this too, and that's when they really started taking note of what was beforehand just a general roughness around the edges that Catherine and her family had. It now seemed a bit more serious. But still, they all, generally speaking, liked her for the most part. On Catherine's 20th birthday in 1975, she fell pregnant and by this time her paranoia was starting to set in and her deep-seated jealousy and subsequent rages would really surface in this next 12 months. Catherine was quite sus on Callot at this point, thinking he was having it off with another woman, and she was right. Callot had indeed been unfaithful and was seeing another woman at this time. He'd later admit to this, but I'm not sure he did at the time to Catherine. On the 11th of May 1976, Catherine would give birth to the couple's first child named Melissa, and only six short weeks later, she tried to stab Callot with a broken beer bottle. And look, while having a newborn is a stressful time, I hear, particularly your first, there's sleep deprivation and the uncertainty in almost every aspect of caring for the child. Attempting to stab your partner with anything is over the line. A few choice words here and there can be forgiven, but I think we're seeing a decent glimpse of Catherine's temper here. By July the same year, so with the baby only being about two months old at this point, Callot took off up to Queensland with his girlfriend, effectively abandoning Catherine and Melissa. And look, this is a hard situation because he'd been come out with broken beer bottles, pub rules, inches away from being opened up. So you can understand him wanting to get away, but by the same token, he'd been doing the wrong thing for a while and he left his child behind with an unstable Catherine. And this mindset Catherine was in would become evident to the whole town. She'd be seen walking the streets of Aberdeen, looking like a frazzled mess, throwing the pram wildly from side to side, at one point even looking like she was going to roll it into traffic. She was said to be obsessively jealous and wailing like a banshee about the place, before she was scooped up by police and taken to St Elmo's Psychiatric Hospital and given antidepressants. 
She'd be discharged and sent home again a couple of weeks later, but her moods were still there. The anger was there bubbling beneath the surface, ready to boil over at a moment's notice. One day Catherine was seen walking down the street by a local corner store owner named Lorna. She spotted Catherine walking near the train tracks where she'd left her pram with baby Melissa inside right in the middle of the tracks. A local man named Ted Abrams was nearby and he also saw this. He was foraging along the train line apparently and he went and rolled the pram off the tracks, saving the baby apparently only moments before the train came rolling through. Old Ted, as he was known locally, became a bit of a hero after this. In the meantime, Catherine had gone to a nearby property, grabbed an axe from the backyard and proceeded to walk into town, swinging wildly, threatening to kill people. So she was scooped up again by the police and taken back to the psychiatric hospital. But she discharged herself pretty much instantly, so not sure what the purpose of this served, taking her back there if she could just waltz out of her own accord. And shortly after this, Catherine went to a neighbour's house. A lady named Molly Perry lived there. And Catherine proceeded to tell Molly that her baby was ill and needed to go to the doctor, so she needed a lift. But this was all a ruse. Molly agreed and brought her two children, Margaret and Henry, along for the ride. When they got into the car, Catherine pulled out a knife and slashed Margaret across the face, then effectively took the family hostage. Catherine really wanted Molly to drive her to Coffs Harbour. This is where Dave Kellett's mother, Jean, lived. Catherine wanted to find out the reason Dave had left from Jean, then kill her to get Kellett's attention, then kill herself apparently, but that point is debatable. They would stop at the local Bogas service station on their way out of town and the police were alerted to the situation at this point and attended the scene. Catherine was really starting to revel in the violence and fear that was happening at this point. She'd taken Henry out of the car and was holding a knife up to him and threatening people and engaging with the police also. The police... Sergeant Lyon and Constable Mackle managed to disarm her with broomsticks, employing Harry Potter-like Quidditch skills, before taking Catherine into custody once again. So you have to wonder if this was the same police every time bringing Catherine in. This was the third incident in a number of weeks, really, and it was said this was a small town, so presumably it was the same police on each occasion getting this call that Catherine had flipped her lid again. But the Perrys were okay and Catherine was once again taken to the psychiatric hospital. Our research showed it was a different hospital this time and not sure if it was a more serious one or if it had just changed names or what, but it was said to be the Morrisett Psychiatric Hospital. While there, Catherine also admitted to nurses that she'd intended to kill the mechanic at the servo because he'd fixed Callet's car, thereby allowing him to flee to Queensland with his new girlfriend. So she was going to kill Jean, Callet's mum, the mechanic, and herself, and she had a decent go at young Margaret and the brother there too. So you can see Catherine's really on a rampage here. So Dave Callett got wind of all this while he was sunning himself up in Queensland and he decided to come back down to Aberdeen and he and his mother Jean went to get Catherine out of the psychiatric hospital, which sounds crazy when you think Catherine was going to kill them. But really, these violent outbursts were just a way for her to get what she wanted, and she did. Callet left his girlfriend in Queensland. She was also pregnant now to Callet. So he and his mum, Jean, they went to get Catherine. Shortly after this, they drove out to see 
uh, Catherine's mum, Barbara, in Aberdeen. And when they arrived, Barbara came out of the house, went over to the car and proceeded to choke Callot through the window. And Callot's mum, Jean, was absolutely terrified, as you would be, but Catherine's reaction would be a little different. She got out of the car, ran around to her mother and punched her, knocked her out unconscious in one punch, and Barbara fell down into the dirt, buckled at the knees apparently, and was out like a light. Crazy stuff. Catherine yelled at her to never touch Dave again, and they left. Shortly after, Dave and Catherine would move to the suburb of Woodridge, hitting the refresh button on their marriage. Dave had a job as a truck driver now, and Catherine found work where she could, once again utilising her carving skills at Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. So 1976 was one hell of a year for Catherine Knight, and we can really see here her behaviours not only escalating, but the patterns establishing and the motivations and intentions of the behaviours as well. She was really presenting as a Jekyll and Hyde type character. On Catherine's 21st birthday in October of 1976, which was a surprise party that Callot lovingly organised for her, she kissed him all night and was her charming best for the evening. It was around this time also that she became quite obsessed with her knives and she began mounting them above their marital bed in case she needed them, apparently. That's just creepy. Uh, But despite this display at her party, Catherine's behaviour behind closed doors would continue to be as unpredictable and violent as ever. On one occasion, not long after the birthday, Kellett's sister described being at their house one night and she heard one of the kids crying pretty intensely. So the sister went to check, hearing the child's voice coming from the bathroom, and when she peeked in there, Catherine was running one of the kids' arms under hot water, seemingly as a punishment, and the child was basically screaming. She went and told Dave immediately, and Dave said not to bring it up with Kathy tonight, or she may well kill you and I in our sleep. The next couple of years saw Catherine and Dave's marriage deteriorate steadily as she puts the psychological screws on him. We're around the 1979 mark now. She'd do things like send him to the pub for drinks with mates, go on Dave, have a great time, and then phone the pub not long into his session and demand he came home. But Catherine decided to go get some payback on Dave at this time also. She had an affair with a co-worker from the abattoir and Dave actually walked in on them which Catherine probably enjoyed. She begged him for another chance and really this was a power thing, wasn't it? Her trying to even the keel and for whatever reason, Kellett did give things another shot. They moved to the suburb of Lanceborough and another refresh, I guess, and then Catherine would implement her trademark tactic of falling pregnant. All the while the violence within the relationship was escalating. Callot would regularly be on the receiving end of kitchen items and implements being hurled in his direction. He was getting very scared at this time, and he just didn't know when she would attack him next. One time, Dave came home late from the pub because his team had made the finals of the darts competition. So after a few bullseyes, Dave rolled in late, probably with a few beers under his belt, and this enraged Catherine like you wouldn't believe, the fact that he was late. When he came inside, she smashed his head in with a frying pan. Crack, right over his head, callet with the skillet. And it caved his skull in, fractured his skull anyway, and he wobbled out of the house and staggered to a neighbour's house. 
They took one look at him and they thought he was dead. There was just so much blood. But he didn't go down, old Skillet Callet, and he didn't press charges either because Catherine pleaded with him not to for the sake of the kids. But it almost killed him, this attack, no doubt about it. She'd also poured petrol all over his clothes after this attack, put them all in the bathtub and set them on fire. Burn all of his freaking clothes except for what he had uh, on his back, which was undoubtedly blood-soaked from the fry pan attack. In March of 1980, Catherine and Dave would have their second child, Natasha, at the Campbell Hospital. Dave was away a lot at this time. He was driving trucks, as we said before, and his extended absences only heightened Catherine's anxiety levels. One night when Dave was actually home, he awoke to an agitated Catherine threatening to cut his throat, actually holding the knife across his throat because she knew he had a woman in every town like every truck driver does. Dave denied that, as he would, with someone threatening to stab you over it. Whether he did or not, I'm not sure. He'd certainly proved historically he had it in him, but he might have also had it scared out of him by this point. But Dave wouldn't have to wait much longer to be rid of the dread and fear he was undoubtedly feeling on a daily basis. As Catherine's violent temper, mood swings and outbursts permeated through every aspect of their marriage. In 1984, as luck would have it for Dave Callett, Catherine up and left one day, taking everything she could from the house, including the curtains and light bulbs, and she took off back to her parents in Aberdeen. She even took his power tools from the shed. So I think we can see here that it's not a fear of abandonment driving Catherine to do what she does. It's really a control mechanism. She's using violence and sex as ways to get what she wants. She'd had enough with Callet by this point and was happy to leave as long as it was on her own terms, just like she cheated on him as well when it suited her. So after staying with her parents for a bit, she moves into a rented house in Muzzlebrook, returns to work at the abattoir, But the following year in 1985, she injures her back and went on a disability pension or workers' compensation. And because she didn't need to rent a place close to the abattoir anymore, she now got put up in a government housing commission residence in Aberdeen. And it was here at the Aberdeen Bowling Club, she'd meet a local man named Dave Saunders. Dave 2.0. She liked the Daves at this stage, apparently, Catherine. And Saunders was older than Catherine. He'd been married and divorced once also. But different as he was to Callet in many ways, they were similar knockabout, gutful of piss types. Hard-working and hard-drinking blokes, puffing away on Winnie Blues and sinking tins till they dropped, but always showing up the next day. All of Catherine's partners would fit this kind of mould. Saunders was a former Speedway driver and he worked in the coal mines in Aberdeen. It wouldn't take long for the pair to enter the honeymoon phase of a new relationship and Saunders would move from his apartment in Scone to Aberdeen to be with Catherine and her daughters. Saunders would keep his apartment in Scone, which turned out to be a wise move. As their relationship went on, signs of violence and abuse started to rear its head again, with Catherine being the common denominator – and she'd often kick Saunders out. He'd go back to Scone with his little dingo pup in tow, and Catherine would inevitably come running, begging for Saunders to come back. And he did. And you have to ask at this point, the two Daves, why were they putting up with this shit from this unstable woman? And to put it bluntly, she was apparently great in bed, and that was the reason they kept coming back. One evening Saunders came home, 
walked through the front door and Catherine lunged at him wildly and smashed him across the face with an iron, a clothes iron, not a nine iron golf club, a friggin' hot iron you run over your shirts. Apparently it was said that Saunders' co-workers could see the burn marks of the iron singed into the flesh of his face for weeks after this attack. But the incident wasn't done with the smack in the head from the iron. She continued chasing him around the room with the iron, trying to cave his head in, before she eventually stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. So there's her fabric cutter job skills coming out. As we said, she must have been doing something magic between the sheets to keep these guys on the hook. But even that wasn't enough once they started fearing for their lives. On another sickening occasion, the pair had a quarrel and Saunders was going to leave the house, but noticed Catherine had his dingo pup. So he followed her out into the yard to retrieve the dog off her. Catherine had one of her knives handy and she proceeded to slit the dog's throat in front of Saunders and it bled out, died in front of his own eyes. And apparently this was an example of what would happen to Saunders if he ever had an affair. And then she hit him again with a frying pan after this, knocking him unconscious. So there's a lot of comments made of her obsession with knives, but I think she was equally fascinated by her fry pan as a weapon of choice. She gave that thing an almighty workout. But this incident with the dingo pup, Catherine would allege the fight they were having was two ways. It wasn't just her threatening him and cutting the poor dog's throat. Allegedly, Saunders had kicked her in the stomach when she had told him she was pregnant, something Saunders staunchly denied. So that was her version of events. But nevertheless, she did manage to knock Saunders out with the fry pan before she went around to visit her sister showing up with a shotgun in hand, telling her she'd shot and killed Dave Saunders, which she hadn't. Yeah, the theory was that she was kind of workshopping the murder here as a kind of weird getting off on the reaction type of thing, but without actually having committed the act yet and simultaneously planning on killing Saunders for real. So using the reaction she's getting from her sister Joy to sort of map out in her mind how it'd all go down in reality when she actually struck. So Saunders must have been shitting the bed by this point. He ended up moving in with some mates, trying to put some distance between himself and Catherine, but she was beyond persistent and simply wouldn't let him leave. Catherine once again ensnared the man, and we can all guess how. In June 1988, Catherine and Saunders would have a daughter named Sarah. This prompted Saunders to have a look at some houses for his family. So despite the violence he's experiencing, Saunders is right back on the hook and he's trying to do the right thing here. He found an old weatherboard place that fit the bill in McQueen Street, Aberdeen, and they moved in when Sarah was about six months old. Catherine would later buy into the property with a $15,000 lump sum she received in 1989 from her workers' compensation. So Saunders has set his partner and his daughter up, along with Catherine's two other daughters from her first marriage. But the violence continues, and the dangerous position he's in isn't lost on him. He went back to Scone briefly at one point, and then returned to find that Catherine had cut up all of his clothes. Shortly after this, probably keeping the peace for a short while... Saunders fled. He told Catherine he'd taken long service leave from his job at the mine and he was going to visit an old mate, but he didn't do that. He fled to Newcastle and went into hiding. He got another job and really started a whole new life. Catherine pursued him, but no one in Aberdeen, Scone or otherwise said they knew of Saunders' whereabouts, so no one ratted him out. I'm sure someone knew, but Saunders saw the writing on the wall here. 
and hightailed it out of there, and this probably saved his life. He did return several months later to see his daughter. However, Catherine had taken out a restraining order or AVO, apprehended violence order against him, saying that he was the one who had been violent. It transpired that Catherine had been telling his daughter that her father was dead, which he wasn't, but ironically he might have been had he stayed. Catherine said to Saunders that as long as his balls pointed to the ground, he'd never get to see his daughter. Saunders even tried to get his daughter a dog, which Catherine threatened to kill, so he took it back. Saunders did eventually get custody of his daughter down the track, I believe. It's also worth noting that Dave Callett, Dave version 1.0, would send things to his two girls on occasion, and Catherine would throw his stuff away and tell the girls they'd never received anything from their father. I think it's also worth noting here that despite all of this, Catherine was regarded by locals as a good mother. She'd often give people lifts around town in her red Toyota people mover and she'd offer to babysit. By this time, and I think we'd be around the 1990 mark now, Catherine had already moved on to her next man. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. John Chillingworth, or Chillo as he was known, had met Catherine 20 years earlier while they were working at the abattoir. Nothing happened between them at the time and Chillingworth moved away and got married. That marriage ran its course and Chillingworth had recently returned to the area. So Catherine's given up on Dave's now and she's moved on to John's. Chillo was another gravelly talking, big drinking bloke. Apparently looked a bit like a young Paul Hogan and he was a wise cracking type. And I think it's important to note that he'd been away because by this point, tales of Catherine's man-eating and violent outbursts had fairly well circulated around this small town, which hadn't really grown much in size. It was maybe 1,800 people strong at this point. But Chillingworth hadn't heard these sordid tales about Catherine until his mates worded him up. By the time he knew the full details, they were well and truly into the honeymoon phase. And in Chillingworth's own words... She had a nice ass, and I was usually pissed, so he didn't really think twice. Things were terrific between them, and they were said to be soulmates. Chillingworth thought that she was the one. This relationship would follow an all-too-familiar pattern in the time to come. When Chillingworth was 43 in March 1991, Catherine gave birth to a son they'd name Eric, and throughout the pregnancy, Catherine would taunt Chillingworth, who always wanted to be a father, that the baby wasn't really his. And things had already started to sour between the pair, with similar tales of violence taking place on an increasingly regular basis. Catherine smashed Chillingworth's glasses and they'd hit each other. She even went back and spent a night with Dave Saunders too, which she rubbed in Chillingworth's face. And there'd be problems within the family unit too, as Catherine's girls grew a bit older. Chillingworth wasn't a fan of Catherine's eldest daughter, Melissa, She didn't like him either. One time, Chillingworth hit the young girl and instantly regretted it, but Catherine decided to retaliate by smashing his false teeth. That was one thing that remained a constant with Catherine throughout her life. 
her revenge and her vindictiveness. If you did something wrong by her, she would ensure that you got it back in some form or another, usually worse. But Chillingworth tried to talk to Catherine about the incident, confronted her about smashing his teeth. So she went and smashed his spare pair of false teeth. So Chillingworth was gumming it for a while after this, the poor bastard, soup and baked beans for Chillingworth until he could get a new pair of chompers made up. The violence between the pair would continue to escalate and eventually, after a physical altercation, Catherine took out an AVO against Chillingworth. They reconciled briefly after this, but Catherine didn't withdraw the assault charge. Instead, she attended court with Chillingworth, where he received a two-year good behaviour bond and a $619 fine for his involvement. So we can see the pattern forming here. Ensnares these men, honeymoon period, becomes pregnant, tying them to her for good, and then manipulates them with violence and sex, which I think becomes intertwined for Catherine. And this is probably going back to her childhood, where that over-sexualised upbringing and dampening of her emotional growth initially started. All these men had similar traits, as we said. Hard-talking and drinking blokes. Chillingworth was the same. He'd eventually give away the alcohol and he took a job working for the Salvation Army conducting alcohol counselling for a two-week period. Now, this was up in Queensland. He loved Queensland so much that he decided to stay. After a visit from Catherine and another big blow-up over Catherine flirting with some other bloke, they called it quits for good. Now, you read conflicting things about this, some saying Chillingworth tried to get her back, Some saying that they split up after this blow-up. I think the latter is closer to the truth, as by this time, Catherine had already been having an affair for some time with another man, a local miner named John Price. I found it very hard to keep track of where all the kids were at any given point in researching this. I suppose, like the people within these stories, the way they treated these children, They inevitably got pushed into the background and aren't the focus of this tale, which is sad because they should have been. By this time, Catherine had four children to three former partners. Her youngest was two and eldest was 17 and she had been off work on disability for eight years by now. It was in October 1993 that she met John Price. As we said, John Price, or Pricey, was a local coal miner in Aberdeen. He was born on the 4th of April 1955. He was the eldest of six children. His family were cotton contractors from northern New South Wales. Price left school at the age of 14, barely able to read or write. He'd meet and marry a lady named Colleen. They would have three children together and spend 15 years married before an amicable separation in 1988. Early on in their marriage, Price experienced a family tragedy when his brother accidentally shot his mother and killed her. This had a big impact on Price and Colleen, who was close with her mother-in-law, and eventually they moved away from their hometown of Weewa to Aberdeen in 1981. Pricey was, once again, by the yardstick so many Australians seem to be judged upon, a hard-talking, big-drinking, knockabout kind of bloke. Loved a smoke, loved a beer... Loved a dance or a jive, as he called it, and he loved his kids too. 
And even after separating from his wife, Pricey would do kind deeds for her. He'd lend her money or buy a new household item if something busted or broke down. He was described as a caring, kind-hearted and hard-working man. Always one of the first blokes on the job at the mines and one of the last to leave, he was very respected at this job and he earned some decent money from it too, $100,000 per annum, which is decent in Australia now in 2019, let alone in the mid to late 90s. So Bryce would take up with Catherine Knight while she was still technically with John Chillingworth and after that officially ended, Catherine would move into Price's house in 1995. Price's two eldest kids were living with him while his youngest remained with his ex-wife. And his kids quite liked Catherine. They all got along well to begin with. And while she had her good and bad points, the kids could see some of the arguments between them now and then. She was, by and large, good to them. Price was aware of Catherine's reputation, being a local coal miner. I'd imagine he was well aware of Catherine's history – but he didn't seem to care at first. Once again, this was a relationship that was based on sex, particularly for Price. But the kids did see some disturbing signs from Catherine. I recall one of Price's daughters saying that one time, Catherine deliberately swerved her car to hit a dog, simply because she didn't like dogs. So that's a glimpse of her dark side there, which we've seen plenty of already. As per the usual course of relationships we've already outlined for Catherine, The one with John Price followed very much the same template, a honeymoon period followed by escalating fights and violence, but a constant underpinning of casual, enjoyable sex bringing the pair back together. They hit one another, and while everything would seem to be building up to pregnancy and marriage, Pricey stopped that train in its tracks pretty quickly. And from past experience, we can see where Catherine's mind is going to go when she encounters this kind of resistance. Catherine wasn't falling pregnant, and she made it clear to Price that she wanted marriage. Price told her no, he just wanted the sex and that she should get used to it. Now that in all likelihood went down like a lead balloon, and shortly after this, not by coincidence I'm guessing, it became evident to Catherine that Price had left everything in his will to his children and his ex-wife. This left quite a sour taste in Catherine's foul mouth and she'd turned around to Price and demanded $10,000 to leave. Price told her she wouldn't get a cent, so Catherine turned to her manipulative behaviour that we've seen so much of throughout this tale to this point. Firstly, she said to one of Price's daughters that she wasn't really his child, that her mum had had an affair with someone and that she was some other bloke's child. Price confronted her on this and tried to throw her out of his house, but his house had very much become her house now. She treated it like her own and he couldn't shake her. When Price continued this hardline angle of not giving Catherine a cent, she turned up the heat on the vindictiveness, all the while maintaining the violence and threatening Price that he'd never get rid of her. She'd do him in first. We're going to play a clip now explaining what Catherine did next to Pricey. And this is two journalists speaking on the matter, Peter Lawler and Sandra Lee. They've both written books on this case, and they're really the two authorities when it comes to Catherine Knight. Everything's about revenge and entitlement with Catherine. She's like a B-grade movie in that respect. Pricey had done the wrong thing by her. I think he tried to leave her once or, you know, he'd been at the pub too long. So to, to get revenge, she got the video camera 
and she videoed a first aid kit she thought that he'd stolen from the mine, you know, I don't know, $20 first aid kit. She took the video of it to the mine's management and um, Pricey got sacked for it, lost his job over it. That is a pretty catastrophic thing to do to a man. It's, you know, ending his livelihood, ending her livelihood as well. Again, that's the curious element of Catherine. She's quite happy to, you know, hurt even those like herself to get vengeance on somebody else. You know, she doesn't, there's no barrier for her that she won't cross. Pricey's mates all said, mate, get rid of her, she's bad news things that she was saying and trying to set him up as having stolen. And in fact, he hadn't stolen them at all. There was an out-of-date first aid kit that was at the mines, which had been thrown out. So Pricey proceeded to kick Catherine out of his house after this. Meanwhile, Catherine had been mouthing off around town to mutual friends and family that these actions would fix Pricey. And when we say fix, she meant the opposite. It would screw him right up, and it did. For a few months, Pricey was pretty upset about things, but eventually Pricey started to blame himself. He got lonely and, from what we've gathered, probably horny. So after three months, he took Catherine back. During this time, Catherine had just been sitting in her macabre house, binge-watching sick horror movies, while the two kids who still lived at home were at school. Catherine's house was decorated in the strangest stuff, full of skulls, horns, skins, machetes push mowers, animal heads, creepy shit. This obsession with death was obvious from her interior decorating style and she really soaked this up during those three months. Catherine enjoyed the theme of death like a normal person would enjoy art. When Price rekindled things, he still didn't let her move back in and once again, I'd be guessing that sex was the primary motivator for resuming things with Catherine. Price had lost the respect of many mates at this time because he'd taken her back. He had to change pubs because his mates wouldn't drink with her. I'm not sure if we mentioned earlier, but there were two pubs in Aberdeen, a top and a bottom pub. So Price had to change it up and go to the bottom pub now. His mates were bewildered by his choice to take her back after what she'd done to him. And I guess in a way, they were trying to show some tough love and not enable it any further. But from this point, the violence between the pair would really ramp up as they had continuous fights about Price losing his job and Catherine began really getting into his children's ears with poisonous words. This would lead Price to confront her about this on February 27th, 2000 and what was described as a culminating series of assaults that would end in Catherine stabbing Pricey in the chest. We're going to play a clip of Catherine talking here, explaining her version of events surrounding this stabbing. Once Pricey got off the phone, he started on me and I was around washing up and I could have been a fork, a spoon or anything in my hand. It was a knife that cut your meal with and I aimed it at him and it got him. He was leaning closer than what I thought and... My eyesight was bad at that time. I've only had new glasses since then. So it had nothing to do with her being a fruitcake. No, it was just a vision thing. Apparently she'd also offered a nephew of hers prior to this confrontation and stabbing $500 to steal Price's car and to throw battery acid over his face, an offer that the nephew declined. So she was really turning the screws on Pricey here and he was feeling the heat big time. 
Price, in the time surrounding this culminating assault, had been showing mates some of his battle wounds from the altercations with Catherine. So he had some witnesses. And he'd been trying to get Catherine to leave the house. He had called the police on her but couldn't get her to leave. And the police said there was nothing they could do without a court order. But it was Catherine who'd take out her trademark AVO before Price could, alleging that he had been the violent one. So Price has served the legal notice and he'd eventually get one against Catherine too, but they'd both ignore them. They were essentially just pieces of paper. But the real-world dread Price was experiencing at this point was on display and his work colleagues started to notice how rattled Price was when he showed up to work on the Monday the 28th. He told colleagues that he thought she was going to do him in. Price had also fled the house the night before, thinking Catherine was going to stab him as he slept. He awoke and leapt from the bed, and she was standing at the end of the bed, watching him with her hands behind her back, and Price thought she had a knife in her hand, but she didn't. And this was after they'd had a rare civil conversation about her leaving earlier in that night. But she still wouldn't leave, and the feeling of dread Price had at this time is really hard to imagine, He'd been stabbed more than once by this point and he was fully aware of what Catherine was capable of. In this time, Catherine had also visited friends, family and her doctor to document her alleged bruising and injuries from Price and she'd even said to a friend that this bastard wasn't going to get away with it. On February 29th, 2000, things had come down somewhat and the day started as per normal. Catherine made Pricey his breakfast and packed him lunch before he went off to work. Once he got to work, Pricey organised with his boss to take an hour or two off visiting the magistrate's court so he could see what could be done to keep Catherine away from both himself and his kids. Pricey was very concerned about his children in all of this. The magistrate did issue a restraining order and I'm not sure how this is different to the legal notices they'd both already had issued to one another but in reality, it did nothing different. Pricey's workmates, who'd seen the mounting injuries on the bloke over the preceding weeks, tried to convince him not to go back home, but he did. He told them that he had to for his kids. If she didn't get him, she'd get his kids. But Catherine had organised for all of the kids to be elsewhere that evening. She'd brought a sexy black negligee for the evening too, Meanwhile, Pricey had a couple of beers with a neighbour across the street from him and told this neighbour as he left that if he saw his van in the driveway in the morning to call the cops because she's done me in. Pricey had a normal night after that. He'd eventually fall asleep in bed. Catherine came over around 11.30pm. Pricey awoke when she arrived. They'd watched some television together, had a shower and Catherine had her new black undergarment on, so that lured Pricey into having sex with her. Pricey had a post-coital toilet stop, and then they went to sleep. At 6am the following day, Pricey's neighbour noticed his van was still in the driveway, which was unusual. As we said, Pricey was usually always the first man on the job and an early riser. He hadn't shown up at work, so his work sent out a colleague to check out the place with his neighbour, The pair had a wander around, knocked on Pricey's bedroom window, but got no response. They abandoned the canvas of the house when they noticed some blood on the front door of the premises and contacted the police. Officer Scott Matthews and Sergeant Graham Furlonger drove out to 84 St Andrews Street to have a look around and inspect the place after it had been reported. 
they arrived around 10 past 8 in the morning. Most people, including the police, thought Pricey had just had a big one and was passed out inside, but the blood would suggest otherwise. Once they'd spotted that, the police became a lot more suspicious. They saw through a crack in the front door what appeared to be a curtain hanging down in the hallway. They got no response to knocking, so they headed around to the back of the house. As they got to the back door, the police noticed a piece of meat on the ground outside. With no response to their knocks, the police eventually break in through the back door and ahead they saw the curtain they'd spotted through the crack in the front door. Being closer, it now looked kind of like a blanket on the archway hanging down and Officer Matthews pushed it aside with his left arm as he made his way into the house further. There was something hanging, uh, blocking my entry into the hallway of the house. I, I thought it, it looked like a some type of blanket or some sort of covering that had been placed up on the, uh, on the archway. So I, I, I remember I used my left hand to push it aside and immediately I could feel coldness coming on my left arm. So I, I looked down and my left arm was just covered in blood. Initially I thought I'd injured myself breaking through the back door so I couldn't understand why my arm was bleeding. Sergeant Furlonger quickly realised the blanket or curtain was in fact a human pelt, the skin from the body minus the head hanging from the doorframe. And nearby in the lounge room, the officers saw the remains of a skinned human being with the head and genitals removed. At that point, the officers drew their weapons, and you have to imagine this scenario as a police officer There was blood everywhere, more and more of it as they're going throughout the house and into the kitchen by this point, and they have absolutely no idea what they've walked into. For all they knew, the killer was still in the house, and they potentially were in harm's way here. It would be a very frightening scene for an officer to confront. In the kitchen, the officers noticed strange signs of regular domestic living amongst the ghastly horror movie-like scenes they were encountering, There were a pair of meals plated up on the table. The officers continued to search the rest of the house where they'd encountered a woman who'd be identified as Catherine Knight, passed out on the bed in the master bedroom, having swallowed a number of pills seemingly. They'd tried to stir her but couldn't and the officers eventually carried her out of the house and put her on the back lawn but she didn't come to, clearly drugged out of her mind with whatever she'd taken a concoction of. There was no one else inside the house. She was taken away in an ambulance and news of the crime quickly spread. Police were briefed to expect one of the most horrific crime scenes in history. The skinned victim was identified as John Price, the homeowner, and police had to figure out how to communicate this to his children. They managed to locate and inform his son, and I think his ex-wife and other daughter were told. However, his daughter Rebecca read about it in a newspaper article. Apparently the police just either couldn't locate her or figure out how to tell her. And that's just devastating, I think. Catherine Knight was in police custody in the hospital and unable to communicate at this time. So this gave police some breathing space to get all of the evidence together before questioning her on the events for which she was obviously a prime suspect. They had been building a profile of the pair. Catherine was a strong personality, strong-willed, known around town and had a history of seemingly violent relationships. And as we said, her reputation as a man-eater, for lack of a better term, certainly preceded her. 
John Price was a hard-working, hard-drinking local miner, had a solid reputation as a good bloke and a good father, loved a drink and loved a smoke, and the couple's friendship groups were tough-talking, loud-mouthed drinkers, rough-around-the-edges types. While learning these profiling basics, the police obviously had the forensic analysis of the scene to go along with this. We're going to read directly from parts of the reports from Detective Peter Musio, who was the crime scene investigator. These are extremely graphic in nature, and generally speaking, delving into this level of detail isn't really necessary with a murder. I think we try to strike a balance between detailed and digestible in most cases, particularly where the minute details aren't necessary to facilitate the story. But in this case, it really was the details of the horrific crime scene that made this case so notorious when you compare it with other murders coming out of a domestic violence setting. So it's squeamish relaying the brutality of this crime, but it's pertinent to convey the story in its entirety for us to understand why this case is so well known and so well covered. The following excerpts, as you said, Sean, are directly from the report by crime scene investigator, Detective Senior Constable Peter Musio, who was the first officer into the premises after the initial discovery of John Price's body. I entered the premises to conduct a cursory examination with Detective Sergeant Raymond. I walked in through the rear door and into the kitchen. Once inside the kitchen, I saw a large section of what appeared to be human skin hanging from the top architrave of the doorway leading into the lounge room. This piece of skin extended from the top of the doorway right to the floor and appeared to be an entire human skin. Looking through this doorway into the lounge room, I could see a headless and skinless human body. I walked east along the hallway and looked into the entry foyer and saw an extreme amount of blood pooled on the floor. There was also a large amount of blood smearing over the eastern wall of the entry. The dining room contained a wood and steel dining room table, which had three matching seats placed around it. I noticed blood staining on the shoulder area of a blue shirt, which was draped over the chair on the western side of the table. The medication on the table consisted of three boxes of Philoda ER 5mg, of which two were empty. This medication normally contains two strips of each containing 15 tablets. However, there was only one full strip containing 15 tablets. There was also one empty box of Prinavil 20 tablets. An empty box of Dapatabs was also on the table. This medication, when full, contains 90 tablets at 2.5 milligrams. As mentioned earlier, I saw what appeared to be a complete human skin or pelt hanging from the top architrave of the door, separating the dining room and lounge room. On closer examination, I could distinguish black curly hair at the top, a nose and part of the mouth and ear. About halfway down the pelt, I could see a clump of short black curly hair consistent with pubic hair. I could not recognise any other particular features as it continued to the floor. The edges of the pelt were incised, indicating to me that it had been removed with a sharp instrument. There were also a number of distinct stab wounds to the pelt, about a metre down from the top. The pelt was attached to the architrave by a stainless steel meat hook. The hook was pierced through the top head area of the pelt and then hooked over the architrave on the lounge room side of the door. 
the skin appeared to vary in thickness from approximately one to four centimetres. I noticed a blood trail leading from the lounge room into the kitchen towards the kitchen cooktop in the vicinity of the aluminium boiler. The boiler was on the right side rear element, which was at the time turned off. When I lifted the lid to the boiler, I noticed it was warm to touch. The pot was full of liquid and on the surface I could identify a skinned human head and a number of cooked vegetables. Just to the right or northern side of the cooktop I saw two prepared meals. Each of the meals consisted of two pieces of cooked meat, baked potato, baked pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash and gravy. Underneath each of the meals was a torn section of kitchen paper with a name written on it. The word Beaky, or I think it was meant to be Becky, was written in blue ink pen on one of those pieces, while the word Jonathan was on the other. On the eastern side of the breakfast bar, I saw a small black-handled knife, which was blood-stained, and four empty medication blister packs. I saw an empty Tui's brand beer stubby, a packet of Winfield Red cigarettes, and a black wallet belonging to the deceased on the bench. On the western side of the breakfast bar, I saw a Norton brand bench stone sharpening stone. The skinless and headless body of a person now known to me as John Charles Price was in a supine position with his legs protruding into the entry foyer from the knees down. As mentioned earlier, there was also an extreme amount of blood pooling on the floor of the entry foyer, In this blood pool and staining were marks where the body of the deceased had been dragged about one metre from the middle of the entry foyer onto the carpet in the lounge room. On the floor adjacent to the right arm of the deceased was a blood-stained 31 centimetre yellow plastic-handled knife. The blade of this knife was 17.5 centimetres long. The body was virtually devoid of skin and flesh, exposing the muscles and some organs. There were a number of wounds present on the body, one of the most obvious being a stab wound to the left side of the chest, which extended into the chest cavity. As stated, the body had been skinned in a manner that leads me to believe the person responsible would have had skill in this area. On the northern wall of the western side of the door to the kitchen was a small display cabinet. Lying on the cabinet was a broken picture frame containing a picture of the deceased. To the west of the photograph, still on top of the cabinet, was a blood-stained handwritten note together with another broken picture on top of it. The note was poorly written and contained very basic spelling mistakes. It read, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You too, Beck, for Ross, for little John. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. These allegations were proven baseless. Detective Musio also said, I remember walking down the hallway and at about shoulder height, there were all these blood splatter marks on the walls. To me, it's indicative of each attack. He's absolutely fighting for his life. This bloke's just had a bonk in bed and then he wakes up and stab, stab, stab. He's getting up, there's arterial spurting on the robe and the bed and on the doorway there's a bloodied handprint or swipe on the western side of the door near the dressing table and blood around the light switch. It looks like he's tried to turn the light switch on, and then all down the hallway there's bloody handprints everywhere. 
and he's almost made it. He's opened the front door. The screen door is shut. There is blood staining, trajectory again, flicking out across the front door. He's almost made it, but he wouldn't have survived. He would have been absolutely horrified, terrified, probably terrified more than horrified, trying to get out and all the time being stabbed. 37 times in total, Price had been stabbed. For the following six days, Catherine was kept at Muzzlebrook and Maitland Hospitals. She was eventually interviewed by Detective Sergeant Bob Wells, and she stated that she couldn't remember anything, no admissions whatsoever. You recall Price, you being in the bed? I can't remember anything. Do you recall yourself going to bed? Faintly. Detective Wells could tell that he was being fed bullshit and was just in a bit of shock, really, trying to marry up this woman sitting in front of him with the crime scene. As we said earlier, Catherine Knight looked a lot like she was a librarian or a waitress at your local RSL, not the killer the crime scene was representing. Catherine eventually accepted that she might have killed Price, but still claimed she couldn't remember anything and she began to put forward this scenario of her being the victim of domestic violence. But the holes in this defence would start to appear, beginning with the police interviewing past partners and establishing Catherine as the primary perpetrator of the violence in those, and likely this relationship with John Price. Price's solicitor also discovered a withdrawal from his bank account after the time he'd been murdered. Catherine had driven to Musselbrook and withdrawn $1,000 using Price's card and then returned back to the crime scene. She washed and changed before she left again to take her car back to her house in McQueen Street. This cash of Price's, which she withdrew in two $500 lots, has never been accounted for to this day. Also poking holes in her battered wife defence, was the trail of breadcrumbs she'd left police in the weeks leading up to Price's murder. She'd told numerous people that he was going to get it, including her own brother, who she told three weeks earlier she was going to kill Price, but would make it look like she was crazy, she'd plead insanity and get away with it. They also discovered that Catherine had gone to her daughter's house the night of the murder and made this very strange video where she'd state a lot of bizarre things, but in essence, the video watched like a kind of twisted will, her final wishes or last testament, if you like. So all of this had an impact on the defence Catherine and her legal team were formulating. On the 7th of March 2000, Catherine Knight was charged with the murder of John Price while she was still in her hospital bed. She was subsequently psychologically assessed by three different psychiatrists, and they were all fairly unanimous in their diagnoses. They supported the defence contention that she had a type of amnesia from the events and was dissociative, but they all declared her sane. Two of them concluded she had borderline personality disorder and that she had a vindictive personality. Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, 
and her hearing was initially postponed and then refixed for October 15, 2001. QC Barry O'Keefe presided over Catherine's hearing, where she initially pled not guilty, despite effectively admitting to killing Price by this time. But not long into the trial, Catherine mysteriously did a backflip and changed her plea to guilty. Now this concerned Judge O'Keefe to no end, rightly so, so he ordered Catherine to be psychologically assessed again, due to his concern that if sentenced on this new plea, she might then appeal on psychiatric grounds and have her sentence overturned. So she was assessed again by this court-appointed specialist and deemed once again to be sane. They carried on with sentencing after this, still presenting the facts of the case, at which time Catherine's defence requested she be excused as to not hear the details. But this application was refused and she had to sit there and listen to what she'd done. When the descriptions of the decapitation and skinning of John Price were read out, Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. She also rocked back and forth, wailing like a banshee when pictures of the crime scenes were presented. For the vast majority of the trial, however, Catherine wouldn't make eye contact with anyone, any witness or presenter. She'd just stare straight ahead, completely vacant and emotionless. No reaction to anything at any time. And this behaviour led Judge O'Keefe to believe that Catherine was simply putting on those aforementioned performances when it suited her, when she wanted an adjournment or something. And we've seen those behaviours before in Catherine's past, so it certainly seems to be consistent. Judge O'Keefe inevitably dismissed the notion that Catherine didn't remember committing the crime. He said she was vengeful, violent, the crime was premeditated, and he gave examples of this, as we mentioned before. And Catherine had displayed no remorse for John Price, no acknowledgement of what she'd done and how this had impacted his family, his children in particular, who no longer had a father. Judge O'Keefe sentenced Catherine Knight to life in prison without the possibility of parole. She was the first female in Australian history to receive this sentence. Knight has spent her days since in Silverwater Women's Corrections Centre, She appealed her sentence in 2006, claiming the penalty of life without parole was too severe, but she lost this appeal, with the judge stating this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in civilised society. We often talk about the peripheral victims in these tales as well, and there are many in this. Obviously Catherine's former partners, their children and her own children, and particularly John Price's children, But then you've also got relatives of Catherine's and extended family and friends of John Price. Crimes this heinous and brutal, they change things forever for people. There's no coming back for John Price and for Catherine, well, there's no coming back from what she did. And the police also, I mean, you can only imagine being the officers who discovered this grisly scene, the detectives who had to sift through it and determine what occurred. Detective Bob Wells, who interviewed Catherine, he suffered a nervous breakdown from his involvement in this crime. We often see Catherine referred to as Cathy the Cannibal and Australia's female Hannibal Lecter, or Hannah Lecter, some call her. On the surface, there's certainly some parallels with Hannibal Lecter, but to me, this nicknaming kind of cheapens the seriousness of the crime. It also dehumanises things a bit because it plants that fictitious seed in your mind. Not to mention there's technically no concrete evidence 
uh, that Catherine actually participated in cannibalism. She did dismember and cook his buttocks and boil his head and serve him up on a plate, but these were trophy dinners for the kids. They weren't really meant for them. They weren't due home for dinner any time that night. So it is open for debate if she ate parts of Price. They weren't able to account for all of the pieces of Price. The popular theory or consensus out there is that she ate or tried to eat a part of him and found out what she'd done so abhorrent in her mind that she just blocked it all out. So you guys can make up your own mind on that aspect. Whether she did or didn't is really by the by because we all know what she did do and it's one of the most horrendous crimes in history. So nothing changes that. We wanted to close things out with some information on what Catherine Knight's days in jail are like. A typical day for Knight starts at 7am every morning when she wakes up to go to one of the most tedious jobs in prison. She's stuck in a factory every day from 8am to 1pm, making headphones on a big loud machine. After Knight finishes her day at the headphone factory, she eats lunch before retiring to her cell. Knight has little left for her outside of prison. Her family and friends have abandoned her. Knight is housed in a section of the prison called Willet. She is a Category 4 inmate, the highest and worst category a prisoner can be assigned and always will be. She'll always be classified high risk. She will never go to a place like Emu Plains where she can see trees or walk in a field. She can never have a job mowing lawns where she can leave the jail. She'll always be locked in a factory because everyone thinks she's a heartless, callous monster. Oof. (laughs) It was heavy. Um, Diving into a story like this really knocks the wind out of you. There was a few times then um, where I had to stop before saying the next thing because this crime was so horrific. Whenever I read about a case like this or have listened to other podcasts in it as well, I have this thing where my knees hurt. It's kind of like when someone's joint aches when there's going to be a storm, but mine's for murder or surgical reenactment shows um, and my knees are really sore now. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, it's hard to have thoughts on this case other than I'm so glad she's in jail and can't hurt anyone else. They always say that people who are abused become abusers and I think that we can see a pattern of that here. That combined with the serious personality disorder and potential psychopathy makes for one hell of a dangerous person. This case was also historic in Australia because, as mentioned before, Catherine was the first woman in Australia to be sentenced to prison without parole. And Catherine went against the grain for female killers. She didn't follow a typical pattern of killing that involves less mess, such as poisoning or even beating. She almost went the opposite. People often refer to Catherine Knight as a cannibal, but we couldn't find solid evidence that she ate parts of Price. The theory that I think is more plausible and in line with her past behaviour is that she was actually playing out a scenario whereby preparing him like an animal and cooking him in a stew, she reduced him down to the level of an animal, putting him in the same class as the meat she prepared at the abattoirs she had worked at. She dehumanised him. And I don't think that was to help her commit the crime. I think it was a way to act out the hatred that she had bred for him. And I feel so much for her family, her children and anyone affected by her. I can't imagine what living with that kind of history would do to someone. And I really hope that the cycle of abuse that clearly happened to her ended with her. 
I've even included a, a modern day photo of Knight with her. Uh, she's got her hand on the shoulder of Cardinal George Pell here. Chloe, this is just for you, this photo, which none of the listeners can see. Pell was visiting Silverwater for some sort of religious purpose, I suppose. I don't know. Preparing for his stint, hopefully. Uh, possibly. There's the photo there for you, Chloe. Yeah. Some context for the listeners. When we got our microphone shields a few weeks ago, we were testing them before we recorded to see how they dispersed the plosives, the P sounds, which make the microphone pop loudly. And it was right around the time of Pell's sentencing, and evidently Pell and Pat Oswalt were the only P words that I could come up with when we were testing the windshields. I believe your words to me were, you sick fuck, can't you think of another word starting with P? <laughs> so I did, picture, a picture of Pell. It's not better. <laughs> I just wanted to say thanks for choosing this crime, Chloe, our first milestone episode, number 10. It has haunted me all week, <laughs> deep diving into the world of Aberdeen and its abattoirs and coal mine, heavy drinking, smoking, and Catherine Knight's knife and fry pan work. I woke up a few nights in a cold sweat while absorbing and writing all of this. <laughs> it was just a chilling case with one of the most gruesome crime scenes ever. Very Ed Gein-esque, I thought. She had some serious issues. And really with Catherine Knight, it was that combination of the nature and nurture going horribly wrong in conjunction, I think. And it was just lucky that she didn't kill more partners, to be honest. I mean, Callot was lucky to survive the skillet attack. Saunders, luckily, he knew how to hide. And Chillingworth managed to get far enough away. She could have done more damage than she did. And who knows, if she killed when she was younger and realised the feeling that gave her... It might have led her down an even darker path in the years thereafter. Who knows? That's really just speculation based on what we've seen she's capable of and her psychological uh, traits. But it's a scary one. It's a real-life horror movie. For me, once again, I just think of the Price family and them having lost their father. I feel terribly sorry for them. He sounded like a great dad. He cared about his kids. He just couldn't get away in the end. She did him in as they termed it. And really, this wasn't that long ago. I think of the notoriety of the crime and perhaps some of the pictures you see give you an 80s vibe, but this was the year 2000. It's the same year as the Sydney gang rapes, which to me feels much more recent. I'm not sure why, but it does. And yeah, there's really no light at the end of this tunnel. It's a dark one. Catherine Knight will die in prison, and that was probably the other scary thing about this was just how run-of-the-mill she was. She very much looked like that, like a great auntie who you have hardly ever saw or that old school teacher that you had. You know, she had that sort of hardened yet somewhat familiar every woman quality about her. But Chloe, I mentioned to you before we started recording on the weekend, we cooked some meals uh, on the Sunday for lunches during the week, some meal prep. And I'd cooked up a few rump steaks actually to have for lunch during the week and they have been extremely difficult to get through while researching and writing this episode. I may well 
go vegetarian for a short while after this. I'm vegetarian. This is just my plan. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a long-winded way. I'm actually a, a militant well, vegan. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I also felt like that I don't uh, – I feel like I don't drink or smoke enough after researching this. Basically, all the men in this story were great blokes. And that was seemingly measured by their ability to sink frothies and suck darts. So I've been left with a very mixed feelings about everything I consume after this episode. It's confusing. I feel like I'm going to have some weird dreams tonight after going this deep into that. Um, Well, let's move on. I think we definitely need it if we ever have this week. Um, What is your happy thought? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. That's good. (laughs) My happy thought is it's really just a general appreciation for my life at the moment after covering a case like this. Mm. I think it's really easy to roll along with the day-to-day without taking the time to sort of stand back and reflect. I'm just really grateful for my little family. I've got an amazingly supportive wife and mum to my two great little girls and I've got two cool little dogs and a a very supportive immediate family as well. So covering a case like this, you see the anger and the violence and the roughness of it all. And it's just nice to be on the opposite end of that spectrum. You know, we always have our problems that are real to us at the time when they're happening. But when you take a step back and look at them, they do kind of pale in comparison to what some people and, and families deal with. So that's not lost on me and that's uh, that's my happy thought for this week. That's a good one. Um, mine is a little more superficial. I am excited to go to the comedy festival this week, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Yeah. I always try and go and I'm going this Saturday night um, and I'm just excited. It's a long weekend um, in Australia, is it? Yeah, it's everywhere. Um, it's, a, it's Easter, so I think <laughs> yeah. that's everywhere. Um, that's worldwide, isn't it? it? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> we had someone email us today. If you um, get it in the US and it's now, let us know if East yet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and I'm just really excited for a few days off after a few busy weeks and to have a laugh, I guess. Yeah. That's, that's mine. It's going to be good. Enjoy yourself. Thanks. I'm also going out for dinner, so I'll have a food-related um, oh. happy thought next week. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'll be back on track. Um, and we do have some five-star reviews uh, that were some skipped over from last week. Um, so we have one from Sabres 66, which is called Enjoying Your Work. And it says, new to the world of podcasts. Yes, I know. And I am thoroughly enjoying your podcast episodes. Keep up the great work. And another one from someone with the handle Sweetie Rose 23 and it was called Great New True Crime Podcast from My Favourite List. Brilliant. Superbly researched, written and delivered. I was, in honesty, initially sceptical, but by the end of the first episode was hooked. The credibility of the hosts and the impeccable research makes this podcast something to look forward to. The show and its hosts deserve the accolades I know they are going to continue to receive. Really, really hope True Blue goes on to last for season after season. I'm still sceptical, by the way, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, we have one from someone with the handle Black Caviar, and it was called Exceptional. The review reads, this is hands down the best Australian true crime podcast. Exceptional research, top-notch production, and great presentation from two hosts who have equally great dynamic. But it's the Patreon content that makes this pod stand out from the rest. Chloe and Sean really open up on the Patreon stuff, which they deliver regularly, showing more of their personalities and they discuss related cases from the main episode. It's great storytelling because you've already invested at the start of each episode with backstory and context. 
Great stuff, guys. Keep it up. Thank you, everyone. That's very kind. Isn't it? Very yeah, generous. Absolutely. Um, and don't forget you can get in touch with us. Uh, we've got an email, which is truebluecrime at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is truebluecrime-podcast and our Instagram handle is truebluecrime. So we're going to take next week off from our regular episodes. We're going to hit the refresh button over the Easter break and come back at you all with a series of intriguing and intertwining cases that all sort of flow into one another, hopefully, in one shape or form. So we're very excited for season two of the show. We will be releasing a short bonus mini-sode for you all next week, so you'll still get your dose of True Blue to listen to. If you're up to date on our main episodes, there's a whole lot more of them on Patreon. So take the Easter break, go over to patreon.com forward slash trueblue and sign up. We'll send you a link on how to add the podcast to your app of choice and you can check out those episodes. We just did the hot chocolate rapist last week, Chloe, and that's got some. we got some pretty good feedback on that one. Yeah, so, it's a good one. Yeah. But that's it from us, guys. Thanks again for listening and we'll be back in a couple of weeks all fired up and ready to go on True Blue, True Crime. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Khaled had been drinking like a fish all day, so really he did well to just show up. But Catherine, as we said, was a boner and she wanted her pound of flesh from Shorty. (laughs) (laughs) You can't. (laughs) That's fucked. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.